Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Melissa E.Y. has been able to live the dream. She wanted to be a children's book author and illustrator as far back as she can remember, and to that end, has illustrated more than 30 picture books, beginning with Night Shift Daddy, published in 2000. Another, the most recent, 30 Minutes Over Oregon, a Japanese pilot's World War II story, has won numerous awards and honors, including the 2019 Bank Street College Best of the Year listing, a Junior Library Guild selection, and the Cooperative Children's Book Center Choice's 2019 Best Book of the Year book. Melissa wrote and illustrated Soup Day, which the School Library Journal called a perfect meal and a perfect book, and Pizza Day, A quote from Kirkus Reviews, acrylics, collage, and digital art place red ripe tomatoes and other garden favorites in bold colors against verdant backyard scenes. Melissa, a self-described foodie, was a 2010 Cooking Light Reader Recipe winner, and not surprisingly, loves to infuse her work with the joy of cooking with children. When she's not making visual art, Melissa can be found in the kitchen baking and developing new recipes. Well, we're glad Melissa's taken a break from creating visual and culinary art to be here today. So, Melissa, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Sandy. As I mentioned in the introduction, as far back as you can remember, you've wanted to do what you're doing professionally. Why? How come? Where did that start? Well, I was a very early reader, and my family always had books around the house. They always placed an emphasis on books. My my dad was a child psychologist, so he always had various books around, and my brother is seven years older than me. So I um, inherited a lot of his books. Mm-hmm. And I you was, encouraged or you, it was just a natural no, gravitational I, Yeah, act. no. I was encouraged in, in that my mother used to read to us every okay. single night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just loved the stories and I loved the illustrations. I remember just loving the illustrations and loving going into another world. Mm that I didn't know. and Kind of transcend, and that your mind could take you somewhere right. else. Uh-huh. And um, I think I was a very anxious child. Mm-hmm. I was very shy. I was afraid of strangers. And um, even when I was older, I felt very anxious and insecure because I looked so different from everyone else around me except for my family because where we lived, there were no other Asian Americans or no other Asians very few. There was nobody in my And where'd you school. grow up? On the central coast of California in a very small town um, called Lompoc. Not very many people know of it, but it is in Santa Barbara County, and it's a very agricultural area, very beautiful. And also very white? Very white, and um, but there was moderate number of Latino families there mm-hmm. as well. But basically, those were the two main groups. So I always found myself being the only Asian kid in, like, the whole school, Wow, practically. Yeah, that's a big deal. Especially as a young kid, and I didn't even have my brother. And he suffered, too. And, and I didn't suffer, I think, as much as him because he. I think it's uh, because he's a boy. Right. But occasionally, you know, people would point out my physical differences the basic things, but I think I internalized a lot of that because I already 
felt like like um I didn't want to be seen, you know. Mm, I mm. just um wanted to be in my cozy little cocoon in my family and with my books and so the books and the art I drew from a very early age and I read from a very early age. They they were kind of like a cocoon and I can could escape in them and I could create my own different worlds with my own art and I also used to make miniature books, thumbnail size books. Mm-hmm. And uh, write little short stories and illustrate them from a very young age. So I always had that. So that was your safe space, wasn't it? Yeah. To do that. You know, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I want to tell you about an author who I interviewed back in the day named Zeta Elliott. Oh, I listened to that interview. It was so fascinating. Well, and she is... African-American, mm-hmm. and one of the in incentives for her to write children's books was the fact that she never saw herself exactly. in the books that she was reading when she was younger. And clearly, that's what happened to you. That really resonated with me. I really connected with her story on on that level. I could really relate to it. But one of the books that one of my favorite books from my childhood was this Richard Scarry best word book. It's still in publication. Mm-hmm. But they, I know that name. Mm-hmm. They changed it to make it more acceptable. Now. Not so scary. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, he has some. They changed it. Like, he has all the girl animals with bows in their hair. Oh, and, hmm. and all, you know, all the female characters have occupations like teacher, secretary, stewardess. And so they updated those things. But, I, you know, they're animals. Mm-hmm. They're not people. Mm-hmm. And, um... I I think that may be one of the reasons why I loved it so much also is because they were all animals, but they're living, they're anthropomorphic animals, mm-hmm, so they're mm-hmm. in the, our world. Right. And it was a world that I could relate to, but also showing all these other things like cities and, you know, different countries. So that spoke to you in a different way. I mean, yeah. that, that enticed you or excited you. Right. And I always loved kind of concept books or books that talked about the world. And um, that book is just a word book. It's just all the things in different areas. And my mother got so sick of reading. I would always request that one with um, my brother and I. And they're like, no, let's not. Let's read a different book. (laughs) But I love that book. and, And that's how I learned how to read. I didn't go through the regular method of learning how to read where you sound out the letters. I I think just from going through books like that over and over with my mom every single night, I would just recognize, you know, and he has like book and then the word book and just Mm -hmm. doing that over and over, I was able to. So you must have been a bit advanced. I think so. I remember uh, the other students, your classmates. Yeah, I remember in kindergarten, um, they were learning back then, they were learning IPA, which is a phonetic way of teaching kids how to learn, which they don't do anymore because they found that it wasn't effective. But it's first teaching kids how to how to read in a phonetic Mm -hmm. phonetic symbols, Mm -hmm. and then you move you transition. So I remember I didn't have to do that. And so I would just kind of be off in a corner by myself. I don't know, probably reading or something. I mean, it's one thing to write a book and come up with a story, but it's another ball game altogether to do the illustrating, isn't it? Obviously, they they both require talent and ability, but it's a very different dynamic. And there's not very many 
children's book authors are there who do both? There are a fair number, Maurice Sendak. Oh, but mm-hmm. he didn't start doing both, and I didn't start doing both too. My, I always felt more comfortable with the artwork, and I was always thought of myself as an artist, even as a child, and that's how people knew me. Mm-hmm. They would ask me, "Oh, can you draw this for me, or can you do this?" and that so you was, assumed you were going to, did you major kind of in art when you went to college? Identity. Well, this is a sad thing, or not sad. I shouldn't say that it's sad. When I went to college, yes, I majored in art at first, and then I think I had adopted this idea that it was too frivolous to be an artist and that I wouldn't be able to really make a living mm-hmm. with my art. What did you envision for yourself in terms of art? What did you think you wanted to do? I always wanted to be an illustrator, but there was nothing. I didn't have the resources. Mm -hmm. There was only the fine art department, and um, I didn't have anybody to guide me to say, "Oh, hey, this you know, there's these other schools." Where'd you go to college? Originally, I went. I graduated from UC Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. and while I was there, I love. I also love languages, so I was going back to my heritage, which is Japanese. I'm a Japanese-American. My grandparents immigrated to Hawaii at the turn of the century. And wow. my, both of my parents are from Hawaii. And I never learned how to speak Japanese because they never spoke Japanese in our home because they were encouraged not to speak right. Japanese mm-hmm. during the war. They were yeah, right. alive during the war, So even though they weren't interned. So I wanted to, to go back to my heritage when I was in college, and I finally had the opportunity to take Japanese because that wasn't offered in my high school. So I really got into languages, and then that's how I was introduced to linguistics. Hmm. I love linguistics, which is the study of language. And um, I was fascinated with phonetics and phonology. I just really loved that world. And I had the most amazing mentors there. So I ended up graduating instead with a degree in linguistics and a minor in East Asian studies, because that's all the classes I was taking. Mm -hmm. And I stopped doing my art. And then I went to Japan and I I worked there for several years as a, in the JET program, which is a Japan exchange teaching program. Mm -hmm. And I worked first as an assistant teacher, and then the second year as a coordinator of international relations. Did you feel like you had gone home? I felt the opposite. So it was a very amazing learning experience because I think at the time I felt like, oh, I'm going to go back and um, really reclaim this part of myself. Right, and find your roots, right? Denying, and, you know, I grew up. So much of my childhood was, I wished that I was Caucasian. Mm. I wanted to fit in. And blend in, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and then when I went to college and I met other people, I realized, oh, my gosh, that is such a horrible way to think. I don't want to think that way, you know. I, I And so I thought, oh, well, when I go to Japan, you know, I'm reclaiming my identity. I'm reclaiming my heritage. But when I went there, I, I realized how American I am. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm so American through and through. And it was interesting because the people in Japan, they would assume that I was a national Japanese person. Mm -hmm. Initially, I look Japanese and they would treat me a certain way. And then 
when I would open my mouth, they would realize, oh, you're, you're not one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's another feeling of being yeah. marginalized or excluded. Yeah, so, wow. And they have a very strong, that is a very strong dynamic there because they've been such a homogenized society for hundreds and you know thousands of years. They were a closed mm-hmm. country um, until the 18, 1868. So um, they still had a lot of that. And this is also back in the 90s. I know it's very different in Japan now. But back then, just the idea of international relations was kind of a newer thing, and they were really pushing hard. So that's why the Japan Exchange teaching program was um, becoming very robust, and the Ministry of Education was pouring so much money into it. So my takeaway was, oh, I'm really, I'm very American. And also, there were other Americans, other British people, other Australian people, other Canadians, other people of different countries teaching there. The people who were not Asian were treated differently from the people who were Asian from these various countries. So it was very interesting to see that and to experience it. And I there was a bit of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I bet. I, I bet. felt like, oh, I don't really belong here. I don't really belong there. It almost seems like there's this theme yeah. <laughs> that you felt was running through your life. Yeah, and and um, when I had taken this position and because of my degree, I had been thinking, oh, maybe I'll go into international relations because the um, Asia-Pacific was really booming and and they were really open to forming these relationships with the US and it was very it was a very great time and I thought oh I should I could do that China also but just after that experience I realized I don't want to live in that place where I'm always have to always having to explain myself. Mm-hmm. It was almost like I had to explain myself more there about my background. Isn't that funny? Because here I often, not so much in New York, but um, when I grew up, everybody would always ask me, where are you from? Where are you from? And I'd say, I'm from the U- United States. And they'd say, no, really, where are you from? And they'd want to know what my background is so they could place me. And um when I was in Japan, the same thing wow. would happen. Yeah, and I'd always have to explain that I. Well, first I would say I was American, and then they would say, "Oh, that's strange. You don't look, look like you're half. You don't yeah. look American. You don't look like you're half Caucasian." Mm-hmm. Is what they meant, and I would say, "No, I'm third generation Japanese American," and then they would understand after that. But it, it was to the point where I would always have to explain that to every single cab drivers, you know, any every time I would speak. And and then I got better at Japanese, and then they would think that I was from maybe Taiwan or another Asian country, and I was always explaining myself. Um, that really stinks. Yeah, so I just yeah. felt like, I think I want to come back to the U.S. and go back to linguistics, because that was what I really loved also, and... and um, and so I came back and I went to graduate school and that's what I studied. I was in a PhD program and I was a focus on Japanese phonology. So I was combining both of my mm-hmm. interests in that manner. And uh, it was such a an amazing program. I met the most amazing 
people there, and it was an amazingly supportive environment, which isn't always the case, mm-hmm. I think, in different graduate programs. That you all support each other and you're all in this together yes. as opposed to a little bit of, you know. Yeah, I didn't feel that kind of uh-huh. competition. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but while I was there, that's really when I realized, oh, my gosh, I've been running from doing what I truly love mm-hmm. and what I truly what is truly me because I was afraid of failing at yeah. it and not being able to uh-huh. Uh-huh. be successful in that. And while I was in graduate school, I realized, oh my gosh, these people are so passionate about linguistics. I'm pas- I was pas- passionate about linguistics as well, but not to the Didn't level. speak to you in the same way that, no, they, that literature and art did, right? Yes. I mean, they lived it. They Every meal, they were talking about it. They slept it. And and also there was the, I realized in, in graduate school that, you know, a job in academia is so not... Uh, Sexy? Well, no, it's it's so not guaranteed. Oh, okay. I thought it was sexy. I love the okay, idea. Okay, but of... art is not guaranteed either. Oh, I Melissa. know, I know, not mm-hmm. at all, and that's why I was afraid of it. Yeah. But when I, when I realized this is almost even more less guaranteed because the year before I left, or maybe it was the year I left, there were only two positions: linguistic professorial positions in the whole country that were available for everybody graduating with that degree. <laughs> right, yeah. So you had to go into other departments or, you know, just do research in between. So I just realized oh, if if it's going to be uncertain, no matter what path I take, I I should just do what I love. So I had to start at the beginning because I hadn't been doing my art for over a decade, and I was very rusty and. But uh, probably at the same time very excited. So I how was. did that? How did this come to pass? Night shift, which is as I mentioned, your yes. first children's book that right. you illustrated. Did you just fall into that? No, not at all. I, I after I decided, you know what, I'm not. I don't want to do academia. This is Mm -hmm. not for me. I'm going back to my art. I want to be a children's book illustrator and author. And I was very focused and very um, direct. I was very scared. I was so scared. Mm -hmm. But I I had pushed myself in a corner where I felt like this is my only choice, really. So I um, left this relatively safe situation because I had a full scholarship. You know, I I was kind... I was at a really... uh, amazing institution. I was kind of set for mm-hmm. that path, mm-hmm. but so it was very difficult to walk away from it but and then go into debt. But I went to art school and I went to Art Center College of Design, which is a, a really great commercial art school in Pasadena. And mm-hmm. they have um, different areas. And one of them was illustration. Mm-hmm. So I could get a BFA in illustration. And um, to be an illustrator, you don't need a BFA in illustration, but I felt like I needed the training because I hadn't been I hadn't been creating anything in terms of visual art for over a decade. And I knew that I needed the time for myself to be able to just practice and put my hours in and um, get those skills and um, meet the people who had who are doing that kind of thing that I wanted to do and learn from them. Mm-hmm. So that's where I went. 
And I was so fortunate to be able to study with Marla Frazee. She's a very well-known Caldecott honor hmm. illustrator and mm-hmm. author. She's very well known for Boss Baby because they just made that into a film. Mm -hmm. And she was a wonderful instructor. And I was able to take this class from her my last term there. And I had decided I'm going to New York City. I don't have a job. I don't know anybody there. But that's where you go to go into publishing at the time. Uh At the time. It's different now with the Internet. Sure, sure. Because everybody said it will take twice as long if you stay in Los Angeles. And a lot of people from Art Center would go into car design or go into the film industry or animation. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do children's book illustration. So I knew I had to go to New York. And I asked Marla for advice. And she gave me a name of a name. Uh Somebody who knew this person who was an artist rep in New York. So after I moved to New York City, and I got a job as a web designer because I also my last term at art school, I took a web design class. That was a new explosion. The internet um, was taking off. And so there were very few artists who also knew how to code. So I was able to capitalize on that. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh before I got the book, I had a full-time job Mm -hmm. because I needed to make a living in Mm -hmm. New York. And I was, it was just such great timing. But when I, my first year here, um, I got in touch with that person and she had just started on her own. I think she was two years into it and she took me on even though I didn't have any publishing experience because she saw something in my Obviously. And I was, And I was with her for a year and a half, and I did not get one piece of work. And she stuck with me. And she said, you know, your kids that you're painting look a little scary. They look like they have black eyes, frankly. And Mm -hmm. I'm getting a lot of feedback from art directors that, you know, they're, they're a little put off by that. Because I had come from a more editorial in art school and and she said and more importantly you're not showing that you can tell a story through your pictures through your pictures mm-hmm. and that's what's so important mm-hmm. and also carry a character um, consistently but also in different viewpoints mm-hmm. not just you know the same thing so she said why don't you try that and I put four pieces in my portfolio and we made a promotional piece and within a month, I think. I got my first book, and that was Night Shift Daddy. Uh-huh. At the time, it was with Hyperion Books, uh-huh. written by Eileen Spinelli. And ever since then, I have Well, clearly, 30 books later, you a know. A children's book from the previous book. But I'm, I'm curious about this, being able to make this match and feeling comfortable, you know, creating the author's vision as well, you know, right. that obviously... An illustrator and author work very closely together, but there has to be this blending. And well, this... that's the myth. A lot of people assume that, but actually, if you're paired with an author by the publishing house, um, you never, we never correspond with the author. We never work with the author. So you're over here and he or she we is might over not there. not even meet. I, there's so many authors that I actually haven't have never met in person, and especially back then before the internet was so, you know, part of our lives. Right. 
yeah, I never had any contact with them. And the reason why that is, and the reason why children's book illustration is so different from other kinds of illustration is because there's so much freedom and the illustrator is given the the freedom and the room to create their own vision, vision. Yeah. of the story. And uh-huh. so the author has a vision and basically we work through the editor and the art director, but through the editor. Right. So you your path doesn't really cross yeah. with the author. And so it's always worked, hasn't it? Has yeah. there ever been a time where mm, we just didn't see eye to eye? Who, the editor? I mean, no, the author. And, Actually, yeah. there has been. <laughs> yeah, I guess. There have been times. And so it's good that there is this middle person, i.e. the editor, because they can handle that. Well, sure, that's their job. Yes. There was a case where there was something in the manuscript that was, quite frankly, inac- inaccurate and I wasn't able to paint that because it was inaccurate and nobody had caught it. And um, so the editor was... A, and then at first, the author resisted and didn't want to change it and was say, making some... saying there was an esoteric reason why it was it had to be that way. And we were able to come to a solution because it was something that was a nonfiction thing. It had to do with the number of stars in a constellation, Mm -hmm. and um, the person wanted there to be eight, and there's really seven. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he was saying there's a ghost star, actually, that you can't see with the the human eye Mm -hmm. in a telescope. I'm like, no, I can't paint that. Wow. It's going to be like, that illustrator doesn't know. (laughs) Yeah, you felt really responsible. Uh But but you could really count on one hand how often that happened, right? Most times it's it's a really perfect match, right? Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't, if we didn't talk about 30 Minutes Over Oregon only based on the fact that what you were talking about in terms of your past and your heritage, and this is a book about a Japanese pilot, that must have really meant something to you in a different way than some of your other books, correct? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, for people who don't know the story, 30 Minutes Over Oregon is about a Japanese World War II pilot who actually bombed the Oregon coast. And so many people don't know this story because there were no casualties and there were no real damages. But what's so amazing is that 20 years after the fact in 1962, the town near the bomb site invited him as a guest of honor to their memorial, annual memorial festival. And uh, he was so moved by wow. that gesture. And he came and he made a public apology and donated his 400-year-old samurai sword that had been in his family for generations and and donated so many books on multiculturalism to the library there in hopes of fostering sure yeah these values of peace wow what a story and they forged this amazing relationship that spanned decades uh-huh. from the time that he passed away in the 90s and um in the 80s he also even though he had suffered a bankruptcy in the 70s, by the 80s, he was able to host four high school students from the town Brookings, Oregon, to visit Japan and show them Japan. And uh, when he, right before he passed away, they made him an honorary citizen of the town. And after he passed away, some of his ashes were spread over the forests that 
he had bombed. bombed. Yeah. And there's a memorial site. Oh, that's a so great it's story. It's a beautiful story of forgiveness and reaching across this cultural divide. And so when I first got the manuscript, I was like, oh my gosh, on so many levels. Yeah, duh, know, it was my, resonating with you. My father yeah. lives in Oregon, <laughs> even. Uh-huh. And my parents were both in Hawaii when mm-hmm. Pearl mm-hmm. Harbor was bombed. And I, yes, the Japanese heritage. So I definitely wanted to do this book. And this is actually a, a different, very rare occasion where I did correspond with the author during the creative process, which I've never done before, except for when I worked with my husband, Dennis Markell, who's also an author. It's a nonfiction book. It's the first time I I was just going to say, yeah. So there were so many things I wanted to get clear and make sure I had accurate. So the author is Mark Tyler Nobleman, and uh, he's wonderful. And he was so open and he shared his source for for his picture book um, manuscript because there's an adult book written of this bombing that he was corresponding with the author of that book. So he shared so much information with me. And then I actually went to the town and did my own research. Uh, so, yeah, it was lovely to meet him after the book was finally Well, how special it was. Yeah. How did your books come to pass, Soup Day and Pizza Day? Was that, like, a long time coming for you? It was. I had already been illustrating for over 10 years, I mm-hmm. think, at the time. And um, I'd always wanted to write. And I have written so many manuscripts that I are sitting in my... Yeah, right, or in a draw somewhere, right? Yeah, that have not been sold. But Soup Day is my first book, and that is a very personal book for me because it's about cooking and cooking with a young child. And at the time, I had a young child. I have a son now who's 14, but from the time he was two or three, he would always be in the kitchen with me while I was cooking. And then when he became, and I'd take him shopping and teach him about buying vegetables and fruits. And he was always seeing me cook. And then when he was older, he would, I would let him help me cook. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with this book, Soup Day, which is based on an actual soup that I created for my son, to encourage him to eat vegetables. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't like to eat vegetables, but I knew that if he helped me make the soup, he would be more likely. Of course, yeah. And he did, He and he still loves the soup, <laughs> I to say, and he loves to cook, so. And on the other hand, pizza day, who doesn't love pizza? Yes. I mean, that just seems on some level when it comes some, to something culinary, a no-brainer for right. kids. right. Definitely. Everybody loves pizza. And um, I had originally written both of them at the same time Mm -hmm. when he was still young. And I first got the go-ahead for both, and then the recession hit, and everybody was kind of pulling back. Pulling back. Uh They wanted me to wait to see how Soup Day would sell. Yeah, before they... So... We don't have a whole lot of time left, but I wanted to ask, as I mentioned, too, about you being a foodie. You know, you create recipes and and you enjoy yeah. being in the kitchen. Have you ever thought about kind of going in that direction, not for kids, but for adults? Oh, like a cookbook? Like a cookbook. Um, no, my heart is still with kids, and I just have 
so much passion for getting kids interested in cooking at a young age. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great skill to have. It's also a creative endeavor, and it's just so fun to do it with other people, too. I think it's it's so wonderful when you can cook together. That's so different than art, which is solitary. Right, but art doesn't have to be solitary. I mean, you can create art together as well, and you can create art with kids. And I kind of think of cooking as similar to art. I think it's easier for people to approach it. A lot of people might say, oh, I don't know how to draw, or I can't draw. I just draw a stick figure. Right. But but everybody, I think, is more is open to cooking because, you know, you have a recipe, and you can follow these steps, but it's still a very creative process. I'm just personalizing this. I can't draw and I can't cook, <laughs> but I certainly appreciate really good food and really good books. But right. do you ever create art just for you? Yes, I definitely do. And um, now it is the most, it's almost the most important thing to me. It's a, I kind of think of it as a daily practice of self-care for myself. Hmm. Because in the early days when I was so enmeshed in the book illustration and getting a job and doing the job, I forgot about that. And then I came back to it much later when I I was feeling very stuck and frustrated and I wasn't enjoying my work. I, you know, I wasn't enjoying the creation of the work. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when I thought, you know, I, I need to go back. Again, it goes to the fear because I think it's always more scary to do something that you're not good at. And well, part of or doing you're so- nervous. So you don't know that you're not good at. You just, it just may be something new to new, you. Something yeah, new. new to you. So right. part of my personal work is doing something new and for myself also that I don't necessarily need to show people, but it always turns out to be my strongest work. And it paradoxically, it's always what gets me new work. Hmm. So once I started to really show my personal work, I wouldn't always show it. Meaning what? Paintings? Yes. My own illustrations, paintings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And well, in the beginning, uh, I just started with just a simple daily sketch of Mm -hmm. people that I saw in my neighborhood. And I just wanted to do some take some time to do something for myself that didn't have any expectations mm-hmm. or pressures mm-hmm. or anything. But I also wanted to learn how to paint people better, and I wanted to just practice every single day. And at first, it, it was almost difficult to do it because the it's really hard for me to turn off the critical brain. But after doing that, for a while, I found that it just it became... Just a very meditative meditative act, and because I was doing it every day with no expectations for it to be seen or liked or anything, it became more about the process and just my own creative process and my own growth. And so it was kind of like a a little space I set aside for myself. So uh, I continue to do that, and I've made it a habit now, so every day I have to... I not have to. I get want to. to. Right. I get to and I want to create something just for myself, whether it's a painting or an illustration. And I can choose whether or not to show it. But I, as I mentioned before, if I do show it, those are the things that end up getting me more work. Because I think when you do something from a real place of joy and just 
um, freedom, that's when. Yeah, it, it, it really, really does re- resonate. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Melissa, it was really so great to hear all about who you are and what oh, you've thank done. You. I'm sure there are many more books in your future, right? I yes, thank you. I'm working on uh, several right now. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> and and the marriage between food and literature. Yes. I mean, how great! They're and we can always involved. be reinventing ourselves in yes. that sense. I mean, that's so great. So you'll come back and you'll fill us in <laughs> on uh, what else is going on in your oh, life down the road. So. Thank you right? so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.